Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years. I was in that relationship for 32. We didn't find out until our 29th year of marriage that we were a neurodiverse couple. I've been divorced since 2018, and we have an amazing adult daughter together. And today, I am really excited to have another AANE certified therapist joining me for the podcast. So I want to welcome Krista Marvanko Athens. And I may have gotten your last name wrong, so correct me if I did. It's Marvanko Athens, but that's fine. That's great. Thank you so much. So welcome, welcome. And thank you for having me. This is fantastic. I'm awesome. Really about this. I, this is my first time on a podcast. <laughs> Wonderful. So this will be fun, engaging, and hopefully it'll be an opportunity for you to do a whole lot more podcasts and to share your expertise. So I would love if you would share with our audience a little bit about the work you do and what made you decide to go and and go through the AANE certification process. So um, let's see, most of my couples work early on um, was just really focusing on doing co-parent counseling with separated and divorced couples, um, just helping them stay child focused and um, put together um, good co-parenting plans around their children. And then okay. I started to think, you know, I wanna move more toward working with couples, helping them stay together, finding out what it is that gets in the way and gets people to this place of separation and- mm -hmm. So I did a very intensive, long um, couples training with a place called the Couples Institute. And um, then it wasn't long till my practice started to fill with couples, which was great. Mm -hmm. And then also it wasn't long before I got to a couple, um, working with a couple of couples that I felt super stuck. Mm. And then, of course, it's like, what is going on here? Google, Google, Google. <laughs> um, then, you know, the other thing that, that happened, too, is then one of the partners, Google, 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 what is happening here? And what had happened was, with a, a, a couple of these folks, um, they came to question, they came with the question, could my partner be on the spectrum? Mm. You know, basically, could we be a, a neurodiverse couple? And then I thought, oh, geez, um, the, of course, this is mm -hmm. exactly what could be happening here. I know nothing about this. I, I, one thing I did know is it's super important to be working with these folks through a neurodiverse lens. Right. Um, got a A N E the Asperger Autism Network and spoke with a lovely woman there who said to me, why don't you take our training mm. and you can work with these couples? Um, so that's what I did. And actually the folks that I 
was working with at the time because we had a really good relationship um, decided to stick with me and uh, the work really turned out great. And so that's how I came to, um, to the place now where um, I've been doing it for a bit now for a few years. Wonderful. That's so awesome because, you know, Krista, I hear over and over again from therapists who one of the reasons that they decided to go for the certification, the training, and then the certification with AANE is exactly what you said. You know, there's skilled couples therapists, and then there's these couples that you know, the, the regular processes, techniques, tools that you've been using for years aren't working. And I know the same thing happened with my ex-husband and I, because we went to three therapists during our separation, none of whom had any experience working with neurodiverse couples and actually did more harm than good. So it's so exciting to be able to talk to couples therapists who really understand the dynamics of a neurodiverse relationship. So thank you for sharing that. And I'd love to talk a little bit about the model that you use as the framework for working with couples. And I know that's the developmental model. And I'd love to also talk about how you create that partnership that allows both of the partners to look at each other through a different lens once they know they're neurodiverse. So let's start with the model and and you can provide our listeners with a little bit of information about it. Great model, I find, um, to work with all couples, but also with neurodiverse couples. Um, It's the Couples Institute Two very wise folks, um, Ellen Bader, Peter Pearson, put this together. Um, And the way I like to actually explain it to couples is that, you know, we are taught um, this idea that when people get together, the two, you know, or marry, right? Mm -hmm. The two shall become one. (laughs) Yeah. What? Codependence, codependence. Yeah. Well, it's, it's symbiosis, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Um, that, you know, so the, the message is um, a good relationship is about being more like, right? Mm-hmm. But this is not mm-hmm. a healthy relationship. It's sort of like what people are going for. Um, I also encourage people to look up um, an interesting word or concept uh, called limerence. Mm, what does that mean? So it's that, well, there's a lot to it. So I would encourage people to read about it, but um, it's about it's about that chemistry that we have with another uh, person at the beginning of the relationship, the fireworks, mm. right? When we can f- feel just wanting to be attached at the hip, um, there's really a lot of biochemistry involved there, mm-hmm. right? Cocktail yeah. of neuroepinephrine, dopamine, estrogen, tonight, you know, all those things um, in the brain that create this uh, two shall become one kind of, of, of feeling, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And this goes away. It eventually mm-hmm. goes away. Um, I mean, it's supposed to really, it's, it's just not sustainable. And it scares people. Yeah. 
it scares people. And, you know, and when it does, there's this, uh-oh, you know, what does this mean? We're not in love anymore? You know, yeah. no, this is, this is not true. Um, this is really where true love, right, begins. It's the will of the couple to do the work mm -hmm. of, right? Yeah. And this is where couples begin to really see and experience their differences. And it can be anxiety provoking. Um, it can be scary. Yeah. Some people. And so a big part of the developed model, right, is teaching and guiding couples um, to not be scared of these differences, but to navigate them, to build um, what they call a we. Um, how I like to look at it, too, is you're building a we, a you and me, mm -hmm. and from that synergy, right? Not the two shall become one, but two very different human beings coming together to build something together yeah. with all their positives and then navigating their challenges with templates and tools and things that we all need. Um, to do, to be able to even exist as individuals, but also, you know, in a relationship. Yeah. I love, love, love that. And I've had one, I think one other therapist who uses this model along with some other models and techniques. And it was the first time that I had heard about it. And mm -hmm. um, I just think it, it so makes sense for any couple but definitely for neurodiverse couples, because I hear over and over again that, you know, in the beginning of the relationship, my partner was so different. And then after we moved in with each other, after we married, after we had children, it was like I was, I was with a different person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if some of it may be masking, you know, in the beginning of the relationship, it may be, you know, the courting process where, you know, the partner is using a script or what they learned from watching TV or movies or whatever. And then once they realize the relationship is solid or married, we're living together, they may become more of their authentic self. And that is not necessarily the person that they saw, their partner saw in the beginning. So I think for right. the neurodiverse couples, right, who don't understand their own maybe individual development, understanding that first and then understanding how their relationship is going to go through different phases and changes is going to be really, really helpful, right? It, it, exactly. You know, as you were saying that too, I think sometimes... I think you can see this with all couples really at times, but the neurotypical partner thinking, well, you know, I will be able to change. Mm -hmm. I will be able to change this person or I will be able to do things or say things or we'll be able to do things that will change these things. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, then there's that, oh no, that this is, this is not happening. Yeah. You know, so yes, the developmental model lends itself nicely to working with neurodiverse couples. You know, with the tools of the model, we are helping um, these couples identify and partner as a we 
around the challenges as well again as the positives of looking at all you know the other positive things that they they both bring with their differences to the relationship yeah i i just love it so let's talk a little bit about the different phases or tools that help a neurodiverse couple create a partnership when they are both very very differently wired Mm-hmm. And maybe looking at things through a very, very different lens. So what are some of the first things that you do to help couples move forward in hopefully a positive and successful direction? One of the things, um, one of the tools that I like to use um, is again, this is with a developmental model, they have a lot of real specific exercises and tools, is something um, that they call uh, ineffective behaviors partners use to cope. Mm. And it's an exercise. Okay. Um, And it's really super uh, powerful, I think. You know, you're asking both partners, right? But, you know, often couples will come and they want to tell you immediately what the other person needs to do. To <laughs> right. right. If he or she would just do this or more of that or stuff. And um, this exercise, and I kind of do this, well, depends on the couple, but but fairly early on to start to build this idea that we cannot control or change the other person mm-hmm. we can look at ourselves and what we can contribute to the partnership or maybe even what we're contributing to part of you know the conflict or the problem right. um so ineffective behaviors partners used to cope is really a list of and it's comprehensive, it's long, a list of defense mechanisms that um, if any of us were to sit and look at this list, we could circle things we use. So the exercise is not, you know, often, okay, I can start circling what my partner does. He or she does this, this, this. And it's like, no, this exercise is, is in brave honesty, you know, self with yourself. Mm. But, what are what on this list do you use to cope you know with problems or when things come up or you feel triggered or there's conflict or and i'm not going to read this whole list <laughs> but there are things like blame always have to be right name calling sulk withdraw diagnose intimidate escape stonewall micromanage, criticize, attack, you know, these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I ask each of them to really just take a deep breath and look at this list, circle the ones that they feel like they use. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing because every time I've done this, people are so honest Wow. And it's so eye-opening and it takes a while and they get a little bit nervous because they look at each other and they're like, kind of circling a lot. Are you circling a lot? (laughs) Wow. And then I say, pick 
your top two. Mm. Pick the ones you think are your go-tos, you know, and they'll do that. And you can really see how these partners will develop a dance, really, you know, when they're challenged, when they're challenged at managing their differences, these things pop up and you can really see how they dance together. And you're not having communication at this point. You're having two people's defense mechanisms just bang, 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 banging together, right? Yeah. yeah. When these are identified, then we have really then something specific that each of them can focus on themselves, right? Mm -hmm. This is something I can work on that's going to help our communications and help us in a different way. And then also learn each other's triggers and how they contribute to, to their partners getting you know, set off to have this. And this is, these are all reflexive, right? They just happen like that. Yes. Hear my finger snap. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. And so that's really one of the tools. Um, so with a neurodiverse couple, like sometimes I will see maybe one of the partners circle, their top one always, uh, you know, always have to be right. You know, maybe mm. the, the person on the spectrum and the other partner diagnosing, right? Mm -hmm. Where you might see like that, oh, you, you know, the way you think and the fact that you have an Asperger's profile, this is our problem and blah, blah, you know, that's going nowhere. Right, right. <laughs> and, and it's hurtful. And so yes. you, this is a tool really that starts to identify this dance and turn these things around where we are having communications and conversations rather than conflicts and, and arguments. I love that. And it's simple and it's easy to do. I mean, one of the things that when I'm working with couples that I ask them to do is list the three things that are the greatest challenges in their relationship and then list three things that they're willing to change. So it's very much in alignment with that. Mm. Because, yeah, because I do know. And, you know, if you could see me right now, Krista, you know, I was raising my hand to just about every ineffective behavior you were listing, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm very, very honest on the podcast because, you know, if yeah. I can't be honest about what I did wrong in my marriage, I'm not going to grow. And, you know, I know that by being honest, I'm helping other people, you know, look in the mirror and say, okay, what am I doing to contribute to the conflict, to the toxicity, to the negativity. So, you know, I think that when we can look in the mirror, it allows us maybe to slow down a little bit in the blame department. Yeah. Because, you know, my ex said often it takes two to tango. Yeah, it does. It's not a solo dance. And, and so, but it's really hard. Mm -hmm. And right. And so... Mm -hmm. Once, once the couple really starts honing in on like the top two that they see themselves kind of going to repeatedly, what is the next step in helping them maybe turn those things around into something that's more positive so there isn't so much conflict? 
Well, I'll tell you um, one of the other things as you're saying that, one of the other things then that I also tried to do, which is also part, part of this model too, is um, trying to also help the couple look at where those, especially the top one or two, where those come from, mm -hmm. right? These, mm -hmm. these things actually, you know, defenses, right? Served a purpose. They right. protect us from something. Right. And we learn them and they're in us. They're in our bones. Right. So, so to speak. They are. I agree. Yeah. They're in our bodies. They're in our systems. We've, yes. we've used them to keep us safe, whether it was in childhood or past relationships at school. I, I totally agree. And we don't necessarily know that because mm -hmm. we were doing what we needed to do to keep ourselves safe or protected. Yeah. Yeah. So then if, you know, if we, I try to explore with the couple and have them explore with each other through, you know, being curious through questions um, of where they feel that, you know, these started to develop. And from that place, you start to build a deeper understanding of why this stuff is showing up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just because, you know, I'm pissed at you and I want to attack you or what. No, this is coming from a deep place inside where it is reflexive, just like hitting that place on your knee, you know. Right, right. There, there's a button that's getting hit. And if we understand more about that button, there is that opportunity for compassion, right? There's that opportunity yeah. for empathy. Mm -hmm. And and it's it actually you can see almost like a soothing come over the couple. Mm -hmm. and, oh, I see, you know, why this is showing up like this. This protected you at some point in your life, you yeah. know, as yeah. a child. And so the empathy and compassion, the strength of that is kind of where I try to, to go next. Um, and that that really helps with the dynamic of working with this and getting them more to having conversations about differences or conversations about, okay, when I just did this and you said that and we both felt bad and got into an argument, you know, let's, let's try to pull that, let's try to unpack that together as the we and see what happened and see what we can do to have that be different next time mm -hmm. you know, what do we need to do like for instance there's a on the ineffective behaviors partners used to cope there's one on there um, called walking out without taking a time out and i always pull that one out and turn it around because i think it's a powerful thing to be able to take a time out without walking out Mm. You know, to say, I, to be able to, to recognize and say, I need to re-regulate. I need to go for a walk. I need 30 minutes to do this. I need to take a nap. I need to, and I will, we will come back to this because this is important, but I cannot show up right now. 
in a good way to, to, to sort this. Krista, I love that. And it's something that I talk about often with couples. I think that we don't learn that. Okay. Yep. We, do, we do not learn, number one, how to regulate ourselves. We don't learn what triggers us. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it's things from childhood that we, you know, don't understand as trauma or, you know, just something that, that hurt us and we never healed from. And I'm going to, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but I'm going to give a personal example. So, you know, my father, who my sister and I've learned now is, was on the spectrum. He passed away in 2005. Um, he used to make promises and then not come through. Mm-hmm. He used to agree to do things, whether it was trips or fun stuff. And then my sister and I would get all excited and he would make some excuse for not wanting to go. It was his anxiety. Mm-hmm. He really wanted to do good things for the family. And he did many. But when it came to broken promises, it hurt over and over again. And then what I realized is the same pattern was repeating in my marriage. But I didn't realize that it was from the past. Now, with my father, I didn't get angry with him because he was my father. I mean, I didn't verbalize my anger, I should say. I I kept it inside, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I began not to trust his word. And then I saw the same Well, now looking back, I see the same dynamic happened in my marriage. So my ex would make promises. He would agree to do things. I think sometimes because he really, really never wanted to hurt me and he didn't like to say no to me because I would get upset again, this, this childhood wound that I hadn't, hadn't healed. Mm -hmm. And then looking back, I now realize that I screamed, I yelled, I cried, I got angry every time he agreed to do something and didn't follow through Mm -hmm. now it could be something that we were going to do together it could be something that had to do with his career or you know he was going to pick up something or whatever and I realized that I needed to heal after our divorce that I needed to heal that once I became aware of it or I was going to take it into every other relationship that I had and and I think that's why the developmental model is so helpful understanding your triggers are so helpful is so helpful understanding that the defense mechanisms that we use in our relationships are often because of an unmet need I wanted to feel valued I want to feel I wanted to feel appreciated I wanted to feel like that you know, little girl felt who, when her father did something, you know, special, how I felt. Absolutely. Right. And so when we are able to figure this craziness sometimes out and the root cause and heal, it can make all the difference in our communication with our partners and in the amount of conflict in our relationships, or at least it, it has for me. What are your thoughts? No, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think, again, that's, the, that's what we have control over, right? To be mm-hmm. able to look at those things and do that work. When we do that work, it makes a huge difference in our individual lives and in all our relationships. Right. Right. When it, it, if, 
if you change, you, me, whomever, everybody else kind of has to, too. <laughs> yeah. No, there's always, yeah, exactly. But um, I, I, I'm in total agreement with you. And I do think that's so important in couples' work just to build um, that empathy and that compassion for each other as complex human beings and what we each bring to the space between us. And then how do we work with it as a we, yeah. you know, not an A versus B or you versus me, but as a we. Yeah. And remembering that we're on the same team, it isn't a competition in a marriage mm -hmm. to be, you know, who can be right. And I think oftentimes in any relationship, you know, there's one person who wants to be right more often. I know that that was me over and over again. I don't need to be right anymore. I want to learn. I want to understand. I want to gain um, perspective so that I can really be compassionate about whatever my partner is going through and what my friends are going through. But I, I will say something that you said that I think is going to be um there's going to be a question mark going off in a lot of people's heads. And that's the issue of empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. Because I hear over and over again, I run two neurotypical support groups. And I hear over and over again from partners who say, you know, it feels like my partner doesn't have any empathy, they don't have any compassion. And I keep saying over and over again, that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the more we can debunk that myth, the better it is for couples because, and, and I'm going to share my thoughts and I hope um, you'll also share your thoughts on this. I think empathy just looks different to both partners. Yes. And, and it, and it, and, and if we define empathy as a non-autistic, or I define empathy as a non-autistic um, neurotypical person as you coming over and hugging me when I'm crying and you asking me how I'm doing or what I can, what you can do to help and, you know, touching me and all those things, because that's what I want, then yeah, I might think my partner doesn't have empathy, but my partner might be expressing empathy in a very different way. Like my ex would bring me when he knew I had had a bad day or we were not in a good place, he would bring me my favorite chocolate bar. <laughs> you know, that was one of his ways of showing empathy. He would ask me if I wanted a back rub because he knew I loved them. Right. He might not use words and his reaction might not be, you know, in the first few seconds as mine would. But that did not mean he did not have empathy. He had buckets of empathy. It was just different. It just looked different, right? And then the compassion piece, I think, is also critical for a lot of neurodiverse relationships because I think sometimes the non-autistic partner may not know how we as neurotypical compassion again um so if i need a hug i need to ask for it i i can't expect my partner to read my mind you know if if my parent is sick and i need to go to the hospital and i want my partner there with me i need to ask for that because it may not be how they view or need compassion does that make sense does that make sense makes perfect sense makes okay. perfect sense to me and 
that is some of the work that I do too with couples is really let's educate ourselves at um, what people's definitions of these things are and how they experience them, which can be vastly different. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm in total agreement with you. I do spend a lot of time um, because I will hear um, statements, I'll see gestures, whatever that, you know, from the um, partner on the spectrum that look that to me look very much like a reaching out at an empathic gesture, an empathic response, a compassionate response, and it's not being picked up or read that way. So then the conversations are, how can we have the, that wiring, so to speak, meet? Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. How, yeah. Um, and how do you tune into those, you know, it's what the Gottmans call the bid. Right. <laughs> how do you turn into those, um, you tune into those, uh, those gestures? How do you, how do you see them? How do you make sure you don't, you don't miss them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really critical. And and one of the things that I would say to the autistic partner is to ask, when you see that your partner is crying or you see that your partner is upset or angry, ask, mm-hmm. how can I help? What do you need from me? And if they say nothing, chances are that's not true. <laughs> Right. Um, and, and what you can say, I guess, is a follow up and you can say, OK, I understand or I'm seeing that there's something going on with you. You may not be able to know the feeling they're having, but you can say you can acknowledge I, I it looks like there's something going on. And if there's anything I can do, please let me know. So you've opened that door. Otherwise, it may feel to the um, non-autistic neurotypical partner like you don't care. And that's not true. You just might not know what to do to show you care. Right. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about the challenges that I know some folks may have where the neurotypical partner might almost feel like they're in a parent-child relationship where they have to, they feel they have to teach their partner how to be more of a romantic partner. Um, How do you help folks work through that with the developmental model and other tools you use to get to partnership where they're not in conflict so much because they're in those roles and instead they move to a true partnership and a team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, that I see that um, fairly often where these couples will present with that parent-child um, type dynamic. Yeah, where the neurotypical partner sort of presents um, like a parent mm-hmm. and the other partner, you know, feeling... Um, like a child this is you know not a healthy dynamic um and the work there is helping again the couple to move to feeling themselves in an adult to adult relationship um right so um i i often too i think another important thing to have in the education part too is that, and it kind of relates to what we were just talking about, these parent-child dynamics can create 
um, re-traumatization of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, many times the um, AS partner has experienced a history, right, of shame, of bullying, of all kinds of things in their in their childhood. And these parent-child interactions can hit what I call the shame button. Mm-hmm. Or some of my clients uh, also will call it other things like the stupid button. Mm-hmm. You know, door yeah. that's been created by these old negative experiences, right? Which then pulls the partners into defensiveness, um, mm-hmm. which then turns into conflict, however that would play out for them. So um, again, it's how do one, one piece is helping the neurotypical partner build empathy around this. So having the person on the spectrum sharing some of these, um, you know, uh, stories from their history. Sometimes mm-hmm. some of the partners never have heard these mm-hmm. about what happened in school or how they were treated by siblings or, or or family um the other thing tool i like to use again from the developmental model is um what they call the initiator inquirer tool Mm. and i'll try to really simplify this it's um it's almost like uh you can really hold these in your hands like papers and it and it and it grounds you in your role and, and the initiator is the person who's doing the sharing. And the inquirer is the person who is listening with the intent to understand, to be curious, and to ask questions, not with the intent to respond, which is what we usually do, right? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so it, it it's practicing with this tool of having conversations about you know really anything but practice and I like to have people put in a practice of doing this weekly mm-hmm. where they set aside a time can be 20 minutes 30 minutes no phones no tv no food not in the car you know it's, it's like coming to a therapy session you put that time aside you sit together in the same place and you practice using this, you know, this eye to eye model. And it's with with the idea too, of we are developing, practicing an adult to adult relationship Mm -hmm. and building that, that we that I was talking about before with that. I love that. You know, um, I think that if we don't in our neurodiverse relationships and in any relationships, if we don't schedule the time to reconnect and have conversations about meaningful subjects, Mm -hmm. I think we, especially after we have children, we get caught up in, in so many of the have tos. We let the things that create, um, you know, a, a solid foundation for our relationship, go by the way, it's wayside. And it's real hard sometimes when, you know, you haven't done that for years and years and years to trust that your partner, you know, is maybe being honest with you, is willing to keep the schedule, whatever. So I love, absolutely love that. I think that, that that's going to be really helpful to a lot of folks. 
and yeah yeah it's so powerful and i'll tell you when when there is that sharing like for instance that sharing of you know this is how this is what things were like for me in school or this is what things were like for me with my siblings you know that that this is what this feels like when my shame button is being hit or whatever what it felt like that i have had this happened just recently it was just beautiful where the neurotypical partner just looked at their partner and said i see when I tell you what you should or shouldn't do, I'm treating you like a child and it makes you feel not good enough. Mm. Oh my gosh, I'm raising both my hands. It was beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, and things really shifted um, mm-hmm. for, with that. And I've seen all the times where just that helps with that parent, you know, shifting that parent child dynamic to say you know we are, are adult to adult and we as a we we are navigating these differences together i love that and i think for those autistic folks that are listening to the podcast um i know sometimes it can be overwhelming to talk about personal things and for the neurotypical too but i i, I hear this more from um the autistic partners it may be difficult. You may be um, cautious about dealing or talking about things that may make you emotional. And so one recommendation that I would make and tell me if you feel differently is, you know, maybe one subject at a time. You know, if you're going to talk about your childhood, maybe one thing that happened and, you know, maybe even writing it down before um, so you're clear about what it is you want to talk about. And and I've repeatedly heard people, you know, send a text or an email before. So the other partner may have an opportunity to think it through. So, you know, if I wanted to talk to my partner about, you know, things that happened at school that I might say during our next session, during our next get together, um, you said I and I, and it's not I as an EYE, it's I as an um, initiator and inquirer. Yeah. This is something I'd really like to learn about you, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, making it less confrontational, less scary, less emotional, I think is always um, a benefit to both partners. Absolutely. That's even part of the template too, that it's just one piece just one bit yeah that that it's just one topic and I also agree with you too that it can be very sometimes I'll have it be very time limited you know Mm -hmm. I'll have couples even set a timer and say we're going to practice this for 10 minutes because sometimes it can be a bit um overwhelming and Mm -hmm. then you know then we can come back you know then we'll discuss in our next session we'll come back to you know it again a lot of times we will do this too in in a session sure um sure so you can facilitate it absolutely absolutely yeah yeah and i i do recommend to folks that contact me or um send an email or in any of my groups that 
for those discussions that aren't going well when you try them together without a third party, bring those things to therapy, bring those things to coaching because you both can get understanding. And, and I also, and, and Krista, I don't know if this has happened with some of the couples that you've worked with. I always tell folks that your relationship may not succeed and that's okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But wouldn't it be nice if the relationship doesn't succeed, like my marriage didn't, um, you know, after 30 years, we divorced. Wouldn't it be nice if you both understood what you both did that brought you to that point and what you can no longer do? Because, you know, one of the things that I heard from my ex over and over again was that he needed his freedom. And what I realized, you know, he had lived alone for the first time during our separation. He had never lived on his own before. And I know for a lot of autistic folks that I've talked to and met that, you know, having their own downtime and having their space and not having a lot of obligation, social or whatever, and making their own schedule really makes a difference in their mental health and their physical health. And so just because your relationship ends, that doesn't mean that you or your partner or the relationship was a failure. I think it gives you an opportunity to learn and grow first heal and learn and grow and so you can be a better partner in your next relationship absolutely absolutely yeah. that is that is so true that yeah true. yeah it, it brings up something too just that um i have seen in working um with uh, a neurotypical partner is that there's grief. Absolutely. Let's you talk know, about that. Let's talk yeah. about that. What, what have you seen, Krista? Um, in relationships where they've decided that it hasn't work, worked or even in coming, you know, this sort of coming to terms where, um, yes, the, they, these differences exist and there are things that are not going to quote unquote change. Right. You know, and so there were visions and expectations and how things were going to turn out and unfold. And when I see sometimes when the neurotypical partner comes to terms that that's not going to, you know, for example, like um, experiencing joy and um, how, you know, what we're going to do with our lives and how we're going to dream and do this and do that. And, and it's not turning out that way because the other person doesn't experience joy in the same way and is not going to just for an example, um, that there is, you know, there's a lot of just sadness and, Mm -hmm. and, and grief and, and then, needing to process that either together and or separately right for that partner 
Yeah, I so agree with you. And this, you know, has come up over and over again with couples and with individuals. And I saw it in my own relationship. And early on in the podcast, we did um, an episode, I think it was in season one about this grieving the relationship you thought you were going to have. And it's for both partners. Yeah, yes. Absolutely for both, right? Um, do you Do you want to talk about that? Or you want me to share a little bit? You can go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, because I think sometimes we get into a relationship thinking our partner has a certain path or certain potential. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm raising both my hands. I have, you know, three t-shirts to go with that. And um, I, I saw my ex-husband's potential um, and I did everything that I could to support him in achieving his dreams. But, you know, everybody has their own path. They make their own choices. And so I I started grieving for what I thought would be. And this was before we knew we were a neurodiverse couple. Then when I realized we were a neurodiverse couple, I understood why things did not turn out the way they might have Mm -hmm. um, in another relationship. But then I started grieving because I knew that our different operating systems, that the way our brains were wired Um, that wasn't going to change right? ever, ever, Mm -hmm. ever, ever. Mm -hmm. And so things I was holding out for, things I was hoping for were not going to happen. And sometimes I've interviewed uh, neurodiverse couples where both the partners are um, either autistic or, you know, one is diagnosed or identifies as autistic and the other is, I remember one of my guests said he was subclinical, meaning that he wouldn't have been officially diagnosed, but he had a lot of the traits. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes do wonder if that it, it, it may almost be, um, I don't want to say, say more beneficial, but there's an understanding that, you know, you both need a lot of solitude. You both need a lot of time with your special interests that, you know, planning may be difficult. And when you understand that from the get go, Mm -hmm. I think it makes for an easier relationship. And I also think that when people start an intimate relationship or a romantic relationship with somebody and they know at the beginning that they're neurodiverse, Oh my gosh, that makes all the difference in the world, Krista. You're not kidding. <laughs> this is why this is why um, my newest venture, probably over the last maybe six months to a year, is working doing a lot of coaching with um, clients wanting um, premarital, you know, coaching or counseling. It, it, okay. it, you're absolutely right because then you. Yeah, there are so many tools already there. You can just start right off the bat with. I love that. So you do premarital coaching. Yes. So anybody in the world can come to you for that. Absolutely. If if they are a neurodiverse couple and they know that, then there are things that they can talk about that they each need, whether they're both autistic, one's ADHD, another's autistic, or one is more um, neurotypical and the other's autistic, to understand what each needs to be their authentic, healthiest self makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. Because you're going right in with being able to show all the wonderful tools that are 
you know, at their disposal and how to use them and how to set themselves up for success. Absolutely. And I love, I love that. I love it. I love it. Okay. So let's, let's, we're almost at the end. And I think that there are a lot of folks who know their partners on the spectrum before their partner knows. Mm -hmm. And, um, they struggle with that and they ask, you know, what should I do? How do I approach the subject? You know, what can I do? And I always say to them, this is just what I say. I say, you know, it doesn't, in my opinion, this is Mona's idea theory. It doesn't matter if your partner's on the spectrum or they know they're on the spectrum or not. What matters is the way that you choose to communicate with them, the way you understand them, because you can't change your partner no matter what. But then some people, when they do find out their partner's on the spectrum, um, it allows them to make sense of so much, both of them to make sense of so much. So I don't know if you want to address how do you broach the subject? How do you deal with the subject when your partner is like totally against it or doesn't want to hear the words? You can choose whatever path, but I think this is an issue that's really important for us to just... Uh, talk about before we end. I agree with you. And I'll be honest with you. It's one of the, it's one of the things I find the most challenging Mm -hmm. because I really want to not be the person who presses that button. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, you will. And, and to be so respectful and careful with people who don't want to be labeled or aren't ready to look at things or, um, this is true in, in all my work. So, um, you know, I, for as long as I've been practicing as a therapist, I always use colleagues <laughs> to bounce things off of. Right, that, right. That's one of my uh, um, of t- one of my tools. And a lot of times I think you'll see the neurotypical partner come with having Googled, right? right. <laughs> right. So that is really helping them present the information that they've found in a way that has its best is best likely to be received, mm-hmm. right? That it's not, aha, this is what's wrong with you kind of a thing, but it's, yeah. I'm wondering if, I mean, so then it's working. Are we open? Is this person open? Are we all open to just looking at some things, some questions, some traits um are we open to to reading some things together to see if things resonate um and sometimes that works quite well and i'll be quite surprised that then everybody has this sort of like aha Mm -hmm. almost relief like okay well you know that gives us an explanation now what do we do you know Mm -hmm. okay let's start looking all together through this lens that that kind of you know works out well i think the one of the difficult is if i have a hunch and no one else does yet mm. <laughs> you know so what do you do in that yeah. case Krista? that's, what tough. Do do? that's yeah. tough i 
I, what I do is I really just start focusing on differences mm -hmm. that they are that they're seeing in their processing differences that they're seeing in their conversations where they're where things where they miss you know mm -hmm. where yeah um where things are missed not connecting um there's a little tool and i can't remember what it's called um where you go through a list of ways people process stuff and it's and then there's a continuum with a zero to 10 kind of scale where you rate where you fall on how you process, you know, these different kinds of questions. And then at the end, the couples are able to see, wow, we're really different on this. We're really different on this. We're really different on this. And then it becomes, okay, well, all those differences, if you, you know, um, you can see how that's impacting when you're trying to have hard conversations. You can see where it's impacting when you're trying to make decisions, what to do for the evening. You can see where it's impacting, you know, how you understand. So let's start looking at these differences. Sometimes I will throw in this idea that people can be very neurologically different. Mm -hmm. um, and let's just start to talk about how we can navigate those differences and try to build some synergy and connection there. Um, I have found, you know, as we go on and on through that, people then are, can be more open to hear, hey, have you ever considered this? Mm -hmm. Hey, have you ever read about this? Would you be willing to look at this website? Would you be willing to look at this um, book and read about it and see if it resonates? If it doesn't resonate, we throw it out. Right. If it does, we talk about where it, it does. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's been really successful. I love that. I think, you know, I'm almost 60 years old. I think my daughter's generation, she's 25, almost 26. They are much more open to neurological differences. They're up, open to all kinds of differences. And, you know, I think as the generations grow, I think that more and more folks are going to be talking about neurological differences in such a positive way. I mean, I see it with the younger generation on social media. I think it's tougher for those folks that are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, who are being approached by a spouse um, or a partner after many, many years of marriage and the kids leave home. So they're empty nesters. And then this light bulb goes off and I hear it all the time. Oh my gosh, you know, we don't have anything in common. It's even more than that. We can't communicate about anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering, you know, is my partner, my spouse on the spectrum? And during COVID, there were so many folks who spent so much time together who've contacted me and said, you know, I heard the Neurodiverse Love podcast or I saw a video and I'm right. wondering, you know, because mm -hmm. they never saw, you know, the routines that had to be abided by, by their partner and how important that was. And they never really saw how they led, that led to meltdowns when the routines 
changed or whatever. So there's all kinds of things that happen. So this has been, I mean, a wonderful conversation, a great overview of the developmental model and ways in which partners can address and understand better how their ineffective behaviors are challenging and creating mm-hmm. conflict in their relationship. Thank you so, so much for sharing a little bit of your expertise and your knowledge and your experience with neurodiverse couples. Do you have anything else you want to share as we close out? I'd love for you to share how folks can contact you, but is there any other um, thought you have or words of wisdom before you share your contact? I am just so grateful that you invited me to do this. My podcast, I've done it. It's in the books. It's in the books. (laughs) And you were fantastic. See, that's, that's the thing that I love about this. This is one of my strengths. I've always been a talker. Mm -hmm. And I've always been able, as a social worker, I've always been able to get folks to feel comfortable sharing and talking. And for me, This is such an important podcast because so many folks don't know where to turn to hear both sides of the challenges and struggles, but also the strengths. So thank you so much. You were fantastic. Now, how do folks get in touch with you? What state are you located in, Krista? So I'm located in Maryland. So any therapy practice is, of course, folks in Maryland. Um, but I do do couples coach and um, my email is the best way to get a hold of me. Now, of course, that my last name kind of screws things up. <laughs> I, I wish I would have <laughs> got a different website name, but it they can reach me at Krista at KristaMarvenkoAthis.com. I don't know if there's part of your, when you put these podcasts out, if yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, that would yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I will. welcome any questions or anybody who just even just wants to ask me, you know, questions to see if we might be a good fit and have a conversation. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much. I know every episode is helpful to so many people. And I really, really appreciate you sharing your time and your expertise and the things that you are doing now that are helping neurodiverse couples move from challenges and misunderstanding to understanding and success. Thank you so much. Thank you.